my love for my job started out many years ago when putting together project finance transactions which sounds very geeky but learning about all the different pieces of paper required to kind of put one of those huge very expensive projects together somewhere in the world and in recent years it that means projects like a 420 megawatt hydro power station that we did in, in Cameroon. We acted for the sponsors there, one of which was, was EDF, and, and that project is now very much in construction. It's something that I love to follow, and they nowadays it's all on LinkedIn, and they put lots of lovely videos up there about how construction is going. That project is going to be certainly very important for Cameroon, and it's, it's sort of the exciting part of my job is to, to see these things come to fruition. This is Joanne Elson, a project development and project finance lawyer at Herbert Smith Freehills. Joanne is a self-confessed projects and energy transition nerd, and I assure her that she's a really good company on this podcast. In today's episode, I'm talking to Joanne about the challenges of financing energy transition projects. We began by discussing what we actually mean by energy transition. So energy transition means different things for different people, I would say. And the big energy companies like the big oil majors are looking to mitigate their hydrocarbon production, which is is likely to be a high impact and, and high cost activity. But I would say it's at the, the heart of this energy transition and with the climate change goals, etc. It's, it's very much been of a greater focus in recent years. So it does mean different things for different people. But I, I would say that's kind of the, that's been the instigation to the to it. And it includes a sort of wide range of transactions from my point of view. So we've got the kind of green renewable energy uh, projects that have been around for a while now, like your solar and, and, and wind. And then you've got um, the sort of trying to make existing renewable energy projects more reliable. So those wind and solar projects are, you know, provide power, but it can be intermittent. And so to make that more reliable, you'd be looking at technologies like battery storage and other types of storage. Another way of looking at, at energy transition is, is to look at the technology and look at the wide range of opportunities there is there with new technologies coming online, looking to reduce energy consumption or having improved efficiency of existing sort of projects and then reducing any energy losses on those existing projects so that you're kind of looking to improve what we've already got. And some projects are looking at turning one part of their energy delivery chain green. So if you think about perhaps like an LNG project, they may look at making their shipping low carbon and look at how they're powering their ships so that they can sort of point to that as, as making a change and making a transition. But I guess uh, the sort of the really exciting thing at the moment is all this um, hype around new energy such as hydrogen and ammonia and carbon capture and storage. Like these sort of new projects that are or mega projects that we're hearing being talked about across the globe that hopefully will have some sort of high impact in this area. Okay, so with such a, a wide range of projects covered by the blanket term energy transition, what are some of the financing considerations of each of these different project areas? Absolutely. Yeah. So the sort of more what I see is as standard renewable energy projects now are financed on a uh, typical non or, or limited recourse basis. So the kind of the core of a project finance deal being that your SPV is, is set up to construct 
the project, to operate the project, to own it and to, to carry on for a long period of time. But the revenues for that project are what are being financed and there's no sort of recourse to the sponsors or the people that are sitting behind the project. So very much lenders are coming in, they're taking the risk or looking at the risk profile of that project and um, importantly, the revenues that are going to be generated from selling the power and a sort of renewable power example. And that's how, how we go ahead with projects like that. So those projects, I feel that are now ingrained in, in project financing and kind of everyone knows what they're doing there. On the energy storage side, they are being considered for financing and they're very relevant because, as I said, um, a lot of these large projects do provide power, but it's intermittent and it's not always suitable for every all of the power needs. And so the challenge around having a, a non-recourse or a limited recourse financing when you're looking at energy storage is, is to convince the lenders that the technology is good, that they're proven, it, it works, and also convince them of where their revenue flows are, are coming from. So on the technology side, lenders don't like to take a risk on that technology. So they'll be looking for the sponsors to kind of take on that risk. So taking the technology risk on by supporting and um, guaranteeing the performance of that technology. So that's one way they can get comfortable. But then on the, on the revenue side, that is a bit of a challenge because much of the benefit of energy storage is to regulate the power grid. So not just to have power available 24-7. So it's trying to work out where the value is that's being financed for those projects. So something that a lot of people are looking for in the market and working out, and there are ways to do it, but it's not necessarily a straightforward non-recourse or limited recourse financing um, that you'd be using for those projects. If sponsors are providing guarantees around technology or performance, doesn't that move us away from pure non-recourse project finance? Um, I guess in a, in a, from a pure sense, it does somewhat, but there certainly in a number of project financings, there are risks that are best placed with those sponsors. And so you do generally look at who's best placed to take the risk, to mitigate the risk in order to kind of keep the cost down and make the project viable. So it's not ideal for them, but I think until the technology is proven, it's quite a um, proven way of kind of getting the financings away. Okay, so let's take uh, storage as an example, which is a new and developing technology. Can you speak a little bit about some of the projects that have been financed? So what we're seeing at the moment is a lot of projects that have the, the new power projects with storage included. And so you're kind of wrapping up the storage as part of the, the overall project. And you can look to um, South Africa as a great example at the moment on the continent, where there are a number of very large projects coming online, which have storage elements to them, not necessarily always 100% green. And so it is worth looking at the technology that is being used as, as part of those projects to, to make sure that although you've maybe got a wind farm or a, a solar farm, that the storage aspect is also green and not necessarily powered by a diesel generator or something. So uh, there, there are projects that are being financed, but what we're seeing at the moment is, is those kind of being part of bigger projects. But I also know our, our teams down in Australia are probably market leaders in this area and they have a number of mechanisms for for getting these storage projects away, battery storage projects away. And um, they have a, a kind of new products there, but again, not the traditional 
non-recourse or limited recourse financings. You mentioned the buzz and excitement around new hydrogen projects. What are you seeing in that space? Right. So if, if you don't mind, I thought I might just kind of give a little bit of insight to what we mean by this, by hydrogen and how it fits into energy transition. And this is maybe the geeky part again. Excellent. <laughs> <But> Excellent. <laughs> there are different forms of hydrogen. And so when you're thinking about energy transition, I guess everyone immediately thinks of green hydrogen. And for hydrogen to be a green hydrogen project, you'd be looking to to kind of create that through an electrolysis process. So where the water is split into hydrogen and oxygen using electrolysis. And that process means that there's no CO2 emitted, which is great. But also you need to be sure that that electrolysis process is powered by renewable energy. So to, for hydrogen to be green, there are a number of things you need to kind of make sure are actually happening. Sometimes um, you can look at what they call blue hydrogen, which is also can be seen in the energy transition sphere because that's typically natural gas, which is um, reacting with water to be split into hydrogen and CO2. And it's, it's typically split by a process known as steam methane reforming. And I'm perhaps that's pops out of my comfort zone as to explaining exactly what that is. But it's a different process to electrolysis. And the key point to note is that CO2 is emitted. So to make it blue, you'd be looking to store that CO2 um, through like a carbon capture or, or something else. So an additional aspect to your sort of uh, energy chain there. And then just taking one step back, grey hydrogen is how, how you would traditionally have made it or currently are making it using a natural gas, using that SMR process, and but emitting the CO2 up into the atmosphere. So grey, blue, green, I'm sure there are other shades <laughs> that are out there as well with different um, technology behind them. But those are the three ones that I have to kind of keep in my mind when I'm thinking about these these projects. And it's just perhaps also useful for people to understand what the use is currently for, for hydrogen, because it's not necessarily that you're going to use it to, to power your, your power station. It's used in a lot of industrial applications. So it's used as a fundamental building block for manufacture of ammonia. So ammonia is used in, in sort of fertilizer production. It's also used in um, methanol, um, which is then used in the manufacture of many polymers. Um, hydrogen is used in processing intermediate oil products in refineries, and it's actually used quite a lot to do that. And then probably the smallest area at the moment of where hydrogen is used is in the energy field, where it's used through fuel cells, which can be used in a lot of vehicles, transport like buses and big trucks on lands, um, but also in the aviation and maritime spheres as well. But that's perhaps the smaller end of it. So um, certainly the use of it in ammonia and, and, and for making polymers and refining is probably the biggest end use currently. And that's where you'd be looking for your supply and distribution to, to that's where you're going to sell it. Those are the markets you'll be looking to sell your hydrogen products um, once you've managed to create them. Yeah, so it's that I'd like to sort of give <laughs> a bit of background to, to that just because I've been learning about it recently and I think it's very interesting. And then that helps us to understand what the challenges are in financing um, these new projects. So um, as I said, for it to be green, you need an awful lot of renewable power uh, to, to power the electrolysis process. And it means that there's quite a long value chain uh, because you'll have your large wind farm 
which should power your electrolysis process. You need water, so you may need a desal plant as well. And then you need some way of transporting your hydrogen once it's been made. So it's not straightforward, and that's why there are a lot uh, of these projects which are going to be extremely expensive. And people are sort of calling them the mega projects um, going on currently. So um, definitely one to watch and to see how they're financed and whether you're you're financing them as, as separate individual projects or, or whether they're looking at trying to do it in one and what the project on project risk is there. So there's there's a lot to think about. And that's before you even think about regulatory and tax sort of implications. Um, what we know now and what may change in the jurisdictions that you're looking in. Because I, I mean, I don't know what the environment is going to be for the next 25 years in that space. So certainly a lot to think about. So for, for listeners who might be new to the terminology we use in projects, and we do have a lot of listeners who are very experienced, but we also have those who are newer to this area and just getting started. What do we mean by project on project risk? Absolutely. So um, as I was explaining in that sort of value chain there, you have your wind farm, as an example, that's creating the power to to run your, your hydrogen processing plant. The project on project risk is is that you're relying on the revenue streams from supplying your hydrogen product out into the market. But what happens if there's a, a risk with your wind farm It's intermittent and you haven't got the power? That then causes you a problem in your processing, which then causes you an on um, problem in your supply uh, and then you're not going to get paid. So it's that kind of project on project risk, which just makes things a lot more riskier. And I hope that makes sense. Yeah, t- totally makes sense. It's all about the knock-on effect, right? The separate but interdependent projects can have on each other compared maybe to combining them into one project, which is bigger, but harder to finance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the revenue streams flow through all of them. So sometimes it's it's simpler, certainly on a project finance basis, to kind of separate them out and your revenue flows through each one. But then again, you still need to look at the project on project risk. So what are some of the exciting projects that you're following in the market just now? Where should people be looking to see the latest developments? Um, so they should be looking to the, the Middle East. There, There's a couple of mega projects that are going on there. We've been instructed on, on parts of those. So uh, I can't remember the numbers now. They're huge, but it's it's like one or two gigawatts of, of green solar and wind that are going to be required to power the project. And um, the land that's required for that is huge and they have the land. So when, when you're thinking about where these projects are going to be and for it to be green, you need to think about where there is a lot of land, a lot of cheap land preferably near a port and some water. So that kind of then limits you. So I think uh, at the moment, I think it's the Middle East, it's um, Morocco and North Africa. Namibia has signed up with the the German government to do something similar. So yeah, there's a few big ones to watch. In the UK, there are some sort of blue hydrogen projects, some carbon capture stuff going on for sure. But I think to, to do a truly mega project in the green hydrogen sphere, you need that land, um, which we're just we're poor on that in the UK. Indeed. So can we circle back a bit on carbon capture, which you mentioned earlier? What are you seeing there? Um, yeah, so this is where uh, you have perhaps more of a brown a brown industry um, and they're, they're looking to make themselves a bit more 
green that they're looking to get involved in energy transition which is fantastic so they're looking at their existing facilities uh, you know they, they may have a lot of co2 emissions from their industrial facilities now and so how could they they make that better greener so there's ways to do that they, they need to be able to capture the CO2 that they're currently emitting. So there is a process to do that. And then there are CO2 terminals now being created that will gather all of this CO2. So from those individual industrial facilities, perhaps, or importing CO2, even from around the world where other people have gathered theirs together. And then um, once it's all in that terminal, they will transport it offshore Um so that's what we're seeing at the moment, that the CO2 is then transported offshore and stored in sort of underground, old, depleted oil and gas fields. And that's where we're just packing all this CO2. I'm not an engineer or an environmentalist or anything like that. So, I mean, I, I don't know what the impact of that will be, but that's, as I understand it, how, how the sort of carbon capture and storage process works. So with carbon capture, there isn't necessarily an incremental revenue stream, right? So how should we think about financing those projects? Well, yeah, I think it's, again, it's that value chain is adding another project to the, the CCU capture. So if you're, if you're building a new power station that's going to have CO2 emissions and then you're adding the CCUS project to it, it's an, it's an additional project on project risk again. But it's also trying to work out where the revenues are coming from, like who's financing that, because it's most likely to be things like uh, government subsidies that are going to be key there to kind of provide that cash flow benefit because you're not necessarily financing a revenue, but you're looking to kind of offset. Um, it's sort of like a hedge, you can think of it. So it's like you're hedging, you're avoiding that carbon cost. So it's the, it's the governments and, and subsidies being provided to avoid that carbon. Um, so it's a very different sort of revenue stream. So Jana, we, we've talked a bit about the different projects and technologies that are underpinning the energy transition. What if you're a corporate looking to finance your energy transition? What are you seeing in that area? Um, that's a great, a great question. And a lot of corporates are thinking about this very carefully at the moment and looking at their sort of ESG credentials and, and how they can find opportunities to finance in a, a cleaner way. Um, so there are opportunities to use a mix of new and existing financing options to do that. So you can look at financing sort of cleaner equipment and other assets, including infrastructure that's associated with kind of carbon reduction or, or renewable power sources. But really, the types of products that we're seeing are things like sustainable loans. So just to give you an example of what that means, it's a loan where the borrower is is looking to create a relationship between its overall corporate social responsibility strategy and setting targets which are measurable uh, against the, the sustainability aspects that the borrower intends to take on. So it will look at its strategy, it will set itself targets and then those targets will be linked to what we would call a margin ratchet. So increase or decrease in the cost of that financing should those targets be hit or, or missed. So the, the borrower is going to a lender saying, right, we would like to take on one of your sustainable loans. And we promise to, we've looked at our, our social responsible strategy and we've decided we are going to capture X amount of carbon in the next five years. If we do that, then 
will the lender would say great and we will reduce the pricing for your loan to kind of put that carbon capture in place from you know pick up numbers four percent to to three percent that kind of thing but importantly you have to be able to measure whatever that target is and and that measurability needs to kind of stand up to scrutiny so if someone's looking from the outside you can't fudge it you've actually got to be able to show that you've hit those targets in order to get the benefit of, of that lending and equally be penalised if, if you don't hit it. So that, that's one way uh, we're seeing corporates doing this. There's another way, there's sort of green loans. You may have heard about green loans. That's sort of a standard set of sort of LMA green loan principles that are looking to promote. So LMA is the sort of um, standard form of loan documents that we use in, in the UK and in other parts of the world as well. Um, and they've got these green loan principles, which are looking to promote the development and integrity of, of their sort of green loan product. Those loans absolutely must be used for green projects. But the way that you can use those is there could be a green tranche of your project. So if you're looking at decarbonizing or, or lowering the carbon of your, your shipping part of your value chain, then you could use a green loan for, for that aspect. But clearly the whole project itself is is not necessarily going to be green. So those are being used. We're also looking at export credit agencies and, and government financings where you're looking at supplier backed finance for decarbonization products. So if if you are a manufacturer of carbon capture technology or an electrolyzer, then um, in the country that you're you're manufacturing that, the, the export credit agency could provide cheaper debt to the person who's buying that product so that they can use it in their green project. Governments also can provide sort of financing through grants or as a lender of first resort for those sort of early technology, less proven um, technology uh, type products in this area. So subsidies and things are being put forward by different governments into different areas to kind of promote that um, movement for so corporates who are looking to produce those types of products can hopefully access that that cheaper funding to do that. Jenna I think it's been really really useful to dig a bit deeper into what we mean by energy transition and what some of the financing challenges are around it. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. No problem Kenny I've very much enjoyed it and, and showing my geeky self. <laughs> And thanks to you for listening. If you want to be part of a dedicated community of project finance and infrastructure professionals, get access to live events and networking sessions, you can join the Project Finance Institute community for free. Go to members.projectfinanceinstitute.com to sign up. See you there. The project is a production of the Project Finance Institute. Find out more at projectfinanceinstitute.com. Today's episode was presented by Kenny Whitler-Jones and edited and mixed by Bren Russell.